You need to make sure that your product is delivering value to your customers. And you also need to make sure that you as a business are therefore extracting value based on the value that you've delivered to your customer. And at the end of the day, that's kind of really what it's all about. You're listening to GTM Disrupted with Mike Smart of Egress Solutions. Learn how product management and product marketing thought leaders are rethinking their business strategies to thrive in a world of radical change. Hi, my name is Mike Smart and welcome to Go to Market Disrupted. Today we're chatting with Ben Foster, co-founder and partner at Prodify, a product consultancy. Ben is also co-author of a recent book called Build What Matters, a practical guide for product executives. And I think it's a great read on using vision-led product management principles to deliver business outcomes. Today we're going to talk about how to make better decisions, how to balance the product portfolio investments, which I think is still relevant as a topic because we're still early in the new year. But before we do that, I'm going to share a bit about Ben's background. Ben has experience in product and design at B2C companies like eBay and Whoop. I'm sure you've heard of those guys, as well as B2B SaaS companies such as Opower and GoCanvas. Go Canvas, I should say. I met Ben a few years ago while he was CPO at GoCanvas, and I'm really excited to have him with us today. Ben, appreciate you taking the time, sharing some of your insights, some of your experience with us. All right. It's so great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I think we're going to have a great conversation, actually. You know, I gave a snapshot of your background, but usually listeners really want to hear a person's story. So would you mind taking a few minutes sharing your career path and and things like that with the listeners? How did you get to your point? Sure, I'm happy to. You know, it all starts from humble beginnings, you know, just like it does for anybody. And, you know, certainly anybody who has been doing product for as long as I have, usually they have some sort of story for how they got into it. And, uh, you know, product management wasn't really a thing when I graduated from school. And, you know, I, I wrapped up at Berkeley in 1997. What a great time and place to be. You know, I was in Silicon Go Bears, you know, but I was also, you know, I was, I was in Silicon Valley and, you know, the whole internet.com boom was, was, you know, really kind of taking off. And so <clears throat> I was given so much more responsibility than I, that I really should have been early in my career. But the way I got into product was sort of accidental. <laughs> I majored in statistics. I wasn't really sure what to do with that degree, which is kind of funny to say now, given all the data that's out there and all that, you know, powerful use of, of that kind of skill set. But at the time, it wasn't really clear. And so I got into a company that was doing portfolio analytics software for Wall Street investor types. And I was just kind of manning the phones, dealing with support issues that were fairly complex and, and technical okay, matters. I'm curious now. Um, I don't mean to cut you off. What was the name <laughs> of that company? It was called Barra. Uh, oh, no. Berkeley. So in MBA class, I had a stat professor who was actually one of the founders in that school, in that, oh, wow. in that company. Well, wow. and I'm drawing a blank on his name. Um, yeah, boy, I would, I would be as well. <laughs> I mean, it shows us how old we are, I think. <laughs> exactly. I can't remember like that. So I guess it was, it was 26 years ago, but it was a really interesting company. You know, we we're selling CDs to, to Wall Street investor types for a million dollars a CD, right? And that's, that's how you were selling seats back in the day. And, and so they would use the software, they'd have questions, they'd call me. But when the phones weren't ringing, they had me QAing this new software that they were building. And 
one day, you know, I started filing bug reports and the next day it kind of turned into a little bit of, you know, enhancement requests and then feature ideas and then, you know, directions that we could take the product. And, and honestly, one day somebody came over to my desk and they said, you know, are you Ben? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and they said, uh, you know, I'm like, am I in trouble or something like that? And, and they said, how would you like a job in product management? And I was like, what's product management? You know, I, I don't even know what that is. So, you know, certainly humble beginnings, right? I kind of like started there and, and I got picked up when the whole dot-com burst of the bubble happened. And that was a really, you know, painful moment back in, in Silicon Valley at the day. You know, there were very few companies that were hiring and I was fortunate enough to get picked up at eBay. And I was there from 01 to 05. During the time that I was hired, Marty Kagan was running the, the group. And so I got to learn a lot from, you know, the guy who was sort of, you know, in a lot of ways, crafted modern day product management. He, he, has, he is the, the thought leader on product management, I think, right? Yeah, you know, and, and so I got to learn uh, a lot of great things. And I feel like I, I really picked up a good rule book for how to think about the role of product management and, and then do that at a larger company. You know, when I joined, it was 12 product managers. And when I left, it was 120 product managers. What a great time to join eBay. What a great time to be in Silicon Valley after the bust. I mean, we were all running up to that, thinking that the world was going to change in five years and we had to decompress and kind of come back to reality. But what happened afterward, as you experienced, you lived it, was a massive recoil and reset and another set of explosions. eBay being one of the early examples of that between 01 and 05. I mean, that's, that was a phenomenal time. So great. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was really a remarkable experience. And I just feel very fortunate to have had those kinds of opportunities and, you know, just kind of like the luck of the draw to some extent. You know, I think I, I graduated at the right time and place to get given a lot of responsibility and that helped to accelerate my career. And, you know, through all the things, you know, beyond that, one thing led to another where I kind of moved up the ranks in product, uh, started to join some, some early stage companies where I was like the sole product person and then grew that to a team of, you know, 12 or something along those lines and, and was de facto the, the leader of the team. So I sort of, you know, through a combination of things that I learned and picked up at some of these larger companies and the kinds of things that I was able to kind of like experiment with and try myself, I feel like I really started to build, you know, a, a sense of, of uh, confidence around how to lead product teams and things like that. And then I had this, this amazing opportunity to move from the West Coast to the East Coast to go work for a company called Opower that was a B2B to C kind of like uh, company. And we were trying to drive energy efficiency outcomes for people in their homes. And I was really inspired by the mission of the company. I was willing to move my whole family across the, the country. And we still live in Arlington, Virginia now. And, and, you know, back now, a lot of people move out of California to go take jobs. Yes. At the time, nobody really moved in that direction. You know, it wasn't right. very, very common. And so I kind of felt like I was a little bit of an odd person out, but I, I appreciated that experience because it gave me really a wonderful kind of chance to, to, to do a VP lead, you know, a, a product organization to really have this kind of impact that, that really excited me. And I was there, we took out through the IPO. I left very soon after that. And I decided to get into advisory type work because I wanted to kind of just take some time off. And, you know, just from personal reasons, you, you, you work those 70 hour weeks, you know, long enough and you're kind of like, okay, I, I wouldn't mind a break. But obviously I didn't want to sort of separate myself from tech for two years because the world's going to completely change, you know, over that time. And so I thought advisory work was a really good way to do that and just kind of be this bridge. And now I'm looking back 10 years later and, you know, I've been running this advisory practice for 10 years and, and I've loved it. You know, I, I really love sharing all of these insights and things that I've picked up along the way with these companies. But the thing that was really interesting about it was that I thought I was sharing all the things that I learned. And what I didn't realize that is through 
all the interactions that you have with all these companies that are at different stages, different personalities involved, different verticals, et cetera, that you really start to see these patterns emerge of what yields success, what failure looks like, et cetera. And I decided to put that stuff into a book. And I wanted to share that with a broader you know, group of people. And I worked with Rajesh Nurlikar, who co-founded Prodify with me. And then beyond that, I also wanted to take it into practice myself personally. And so even though we were still running this product advisory practice, Prodify, and this kind of coaching practice, I actually wanted to, to be the person who was coaching myself to some extent. And so I decided to go back to a CPO position. I did that at two companies, which you had mentioned, Go Canvas first for about two years. And then I joined Whoop as the CPO there after having been an advisor to both of those companies previously. So great, you know, indispensable and invaluable experience. I, I wouldn't take anything back, but it's been a really interesting kind of thing for me because I've floated back and forth between operating roles in a product leadership position and advising or coaching other people who are in that position as well. Sounds like you have two appetites you're trying to satisfy. The teacher or instructor and the doer, the person who wants to put their hands on it and drive it. Is, it, is that a fair way to think That's about it? That's a very fair way to think about it. <laughs> Absolutely. And, I, and, I'm, and, and, and people like that never get full of either one of them. So it probably won't be the last time you'll step into a, a role that probably will have your hands on. Yeah I'm, yeah. I'm curious when you take the long view that you, because you've seen a lot and you've seen a lot of transition. And from the advisory business that you run, you have the benefit of seeing a lot of different patterns come up. Mm -hmm. What do you see shifting around you right now? If you look at product leadership, product executives, just a snapshot, what's, what's the thing that you say as I scan back and take a broad view that's dynamically changing or happening in front of us right now? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of things that are obviously changing and, you know, AI is obviously getting a lot of attention right now and the influence that's going to have not only on the products themselves, but how product management teams themselves work, right? And, and how engineers work and things like that. So there, there will certainly be profound shifts that are related to that. You know, I think that you're starting to see an understanding and, and hopefully the book Build What Matters actually helped to... <laughs> move things in a little bit in this direction is I feel like the pendulum had swung very much from the early days of product where it was all just, you know, person's opinion or, or idea about where the product should go to taking this, this completely opposite approach of we're going to make only data-driven decisions and we're going to look at, you know, the exact science behind everything and, and almost becoming overly scientific and losing the art of product management, I think. And you're starting to see that kind of like swing back a little bit as well. So there are these different dynamics that are happening in product today. But I'm going to go back to a thing that I read a long time ago in a, in a great article and interview with HBR with Jeff Bezos. Uh, this is from 2006. And he, in this interview, talked about how his whole strategy, his whole methodology, his whole way of thinking about the business was to ask the questions not about what is changing, but what isn't changing. You know, what are those things that have been true for the last hundred years that are going to be true for the next hundred years as well? You know, and, and he and he nailed it with, you know, people want low prices and people want high selection and people want great customer service. And, you know, those are things that are going to be that are going to be consistent. And so you build your strategy, you build your philosophy around that. And I think the same thing is true with product. The things that most drive what makes product successful or uh, unsuccessful in different companies are probably actually the same things today as they were 10 years ago. And will probably still be the same 10, you know, things 10 years from now. I feel like you just have a great setup for my next question because I want to dig into the book a little bit. 
And as I've gone through it, there were some things I was smiling at. And one of them in the, in the book, and I'm not, for those listening, I'm not pitching his book, but I think you'd be well received if you did buy it and read it. And that's the last thing I'll say about it in terms of promo mode. But in the book, you nail something, I think, and I had to smile and laugh because it was so true, even though the book has been out for a while, is this top 10 dysfunctions of product management. And there were two of them that you nailed that I said, I've lived this. And not only that, when I go to clients and work with them today, they're still doing it. One of them is the hamster wheel, right? Delivering code, emphasis on release. And then, well, what did this code actually do to help the business is one of those scratch your head and let's go figure it out kind of things. So that's <laughs> right. the hamster wheel, spinning and spinning and spinning and not paying attention to the consequence or the outcome of what's being done. The other one is the negotiating table, right? Mm -hmm. So these are two of the 10 dysfunctions which is where CPO, CPOs, VPs of product go around the entire organization trying to keep everybody happy. And I intersect with these people when they're failing at that. And some of their frustration is, but I'm trying to keep everybody happy. And therefore, <laughs> in the essence of that is the answer. That's why you're not doing the job well, right? Right. Can you talk about, one, in any angle in this you want to take, I, I think it'd be insightful, but talk about how you help product leaders sort of confront those, move past them. I know you have some tools and some frameworks, but I'm just curious when you see these, not just these two, but there are others, when you see this, what are you, what are you trying to get them to move away from and to? Yeah, you know, there's, there's so much to unpack there. Yeah, you know, there, there's these 10 dysfunctions that, that we've listed out and they're all born from these direct observations that we've had in, in doing this consulting and advisory work, you know, working with so many different product leaders and CEOs and things like that. And it is funny because I'll, you know, I'll go up on stage and do a big talk or something like that. And, and I'll ask people to raise their hands. You know, who's, who's experienced this? Who's experienced that? And it's amazing how many hands are raised. And, and it's also amazing that, that these problems still haven't really been solved. I, I was going to say, go back 15 years, they were the same problems, the right? Rough, you know, I exactly. And, and I think that to me, that's, that's a reflection of the fact that people are trying to approach how to solve them wrong. It's like you go to the doctor and you have some set of symptoms. You're like, well, I have a headache and I have a fever and I have, you know, the chills and I, you know, feel fatigued. And, you know, it's like you can say all these things. They're like, OK, well, here's a pill for fatigue and here's a thing that's going to help you sleep better. And here's a thing that's going to make your headache go away. And like you're, you're sort of solving all the surface level symptoms without really looking at what the underlying root cause is. And I've right. found that there's one or there's a well, I guess there's sort of a, a couple of different root causes behind this. The first is a lack of understanding of the purpose of product management in the first place. And sometimes that's even from the product managers themselves. You know, they think that their job is to ship code or they think that their job is to, is to get releases out the door. But a lot of times it's other people who are holding them accountable that way. It's like, you know, they're, they're getting measured on the number of releases that they make or the frequency of those releases, but they're not getting measured on the business impact that they're driving. So I think that's part one. I think there's another part, which is not having the customer at the center of what they're doing. So you try to drive business results in a good direction to show the ROI of your work. And in many ways, you can look at the role of product management to, to do that. But there's this other issue where they try to get a bunch of low hanging fruit or think that somehow through optimization of the business alone, that somehow that's actually going to help them long-term to drive value for their customer. And I think that a lot of times there's either a lack of understanding of who the customer is or where the value is derived from or how the product fits into that. And it's like you kind of jump directly to these things that are more measurable 
you know, and, and so they focus attention on things like, you know, what's the, how, how often are people successfully going through a join flow or things like that? And yes, you want to optimize those things, but as you optimize them, you're not doing anything to deliver increased customer value. And I think it's important to always remember that that, you know, has to kind of like come front and center. And, and then the third thing, the, the third major root cause here is that a company doesn't invest enough into a shared understanding of what the vision and the strategy is around product. And so product necessarily ends up playing defense. And all these things that they were, they were talking about, all these dysfunctions are essentially ways of playing defense. The negotiating table is like, well, everyone's asking me for all the stuff they want. I don't have enough engineering capacity to get it done. And so I find myself in this gatekeeper role, you know, kind of saying no to a bunch of people and making everybody unhappy. But you're not going to win by somehow finding a way of shoveling 15 pounds of stuff into a five pound bag. It's just not going to happen. You need to instead play offense instead of playing defense. And that's actually the best way of making it successful. So what does it look like to create a vision and create a strategy and get people rallied around that? That's that offense that I'm talking about. It's much more fun to be on offense in this job than it is on defense. Mm -hmm. It's think of it that way. You can only score if you're on offense, right? And the only way to be on offense is to have a really deep understanding of your customers and your users and not just the surface level pains, but the things that they're held accountable for. What are they trying to get done? And when we can get there, I think we have a better chance of, as you say, or I, I will say it my way, flipping the script, if you will, so we can provide some direction to people inside our own organization about here's what it's done. And I've seen, I've seen people do that well, and they're, they're living a different life as a product leader. They're, they're living a different, their teams are healthier, they're stronger, they're having more fun at work. So it's interesting that 15 years ago, this was an issue and it still is today, which probably means you're very busy as an advisory. Egress Solutions is a high-touch product growth and market success consultancy. Since 2009, Egress Solutions has had successful engagements with the top technology organizations, delivering insights into buyer preferences, product market fit, product management, and go-to market excellence. Egress Solutions accelerates top-line growth and market success for our clients. Go to www.egresssolutions.net to learn more. There's, there's another thing in the book that I wanted to tap on, and, and we talked about this offline, but I'll bring it in here. You talk about this continuum of value delivery mm. and extraction versus delivering value. And I call it a continuum because you move, you can, and companies do, people do in their personal lives, and, pe and companies can move from an extreme continuum of delivering value for those that they are I'm going to use the word stewards for our customers. Mm -hmm. That's what we really are down to how much can we extract? And, and I'm curious to, and I, you have a, you have a section in there that's really cool. And I thought I'd just tease it out, but I want to hear your perspective on that because it touches into things that are a lot more meaningful and broader in the business life that we live than just product. And, and I, I just wanted to get your perspective on sort of the thoughts on, how to live on this continuum and how to balance these things. Yeah, I, you know, I, I love your, your orientation around this and thinking about it as a continuum. You know, you, you, you kind of need to do two things at the same time, you, you know, in product. You need to make sure that your product is delivering value to your customers. And you also need to make sure that you as a business are therefore extracting value based on the value that you've delivered to your customer. And 
at the end of the day, that's kind of really what it's all about. What's also interesting to, to note is how much emphasis product teams should have focusing on delivering customer value, where there's so much pressure, I think, these days to show, you know, quick, immediate results in terms of business impact and you know, things like that. And yes, that's the purpose of it. But in a lot of ways, what happens is you have other teams that have an ability to extract business value from the customer value that's being given. So as an example, uh, any CSM in, in a B2B business, their job is to ensure that the, that the customer is recognizing the value that the product is providing, that they're configuring the product correctly to extract the value out of it so that they can get you know, retention or they can get expansion, NRR you know, increases, et cetera, right? Think about sales. They're all about that, right? They're about you know, telling and marketing. It's about telling the story of what the product can do, et cetera. Like, there's all these other functions in the company who have a responsibility of extracting business value based upon the value exchange that is there where a customer is getting something of benefit by using your product. But there's only one team and it is product and engineering combined as one team that is responsible for creating that customer value in the first place. So if they're not paying attention to that, who is, right? And I think that that kind of thing happens a lot. So what happens is you get these 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 kind of like, you know, desires for quick wins, low-hanging fruit, et cetera. And, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't invest in those things. You absolutely should. But it shouldn't be to the exclusion of continuing to create new customer value at the same time. And that's where, you know, innovation comes in. That's where talking to customers, that's where understanding who your, you know, who your ICP is, you know, et cetera. Like there's just, there's so many parts to it to really have an appreciation of that. But it, it's so, so fundamental that product teams emphasize these metrics of success, not in terms of their own business, but in terms of the success of the product. And I've got a good example of this from, from Opower, which is we were driving energy efficiency outcomes for utilities. And we were trying to sell this, this package to utilities. And don't worry about the details. It turns out the utilities are actually incentivized, believe it or not, to lower the energy bills of their customers. Um, it doesn't feel like it, though. It, it, does, it doesn't feel like it, but, but I, I, I promise that that's actually the case. So they have a variety of incentives to do this and they have various programs that they run. You know, they'll replace your windows, your refrigerator, or, you know, <laughs> improve the ceiling in your houses and, and things like that. But one of the things they hadn't really been doing was trying to change people's behavior and getting them to do the kinds of things, turn off the lights more or turn off the, the HVAC when you leave the house or, you know, things like that. And so that's where really where Opower came in was it was, a, it was an alternate program that they could run that was based on behavioral change as opposed to these sort of deemed savings that were coming from equipment replacement, in essence. And so we needed to demonstrate value to our customers. And it was very clear in that case. And actually, in a lot of B2B circumstances, it, that value is really clear. There's some sort of ROI that your customer is supposed to get. And we knew exactly what the metric was, which was kilowatt hours saved divided by dollars spent. That's right. what they cared about, right? But it's such a, when, when you put it on paper and you, and you measure that metric, right? How many kilowatt hours are we saving for our customers based on the dollars that they have to spend on our program, right? And you look at your own revenue and you actually realize that the revenue is the numerator for your equation of success, but it's the denominator of theirs. And so it's, it's a worse product if I increase prices, right? Like I have to work on increasing the, the outcomes for my customers in order to be in a position that I can successfully raise prices for myself. So it's, it's such a great, like clear illustration of how your own business success is contingent upon the success that you deliver to your customers. Because you wouldn't want to extract more value from your product than you're giving to your customers. Otherwise, it's a recipe for disaster. I was going to say, it doesn't last for very long. Yeah, that's a really bad business, right? 
So you have to kind of emphasize that. And I think that's where a lot of, you know, product teams just kind of like fall down. So I recommend, for example, that they have an e like a dashboard that's not their dashboard of their own business. It's the, the, the success of their customers. What it's are the, what is the metric that they want to move? Are they getting the ROI that they're supposed to be getting? How does that compare to other products that are out there? What can we do to, to, to further extend what that looks like? For them? And if you see that dashboard and you focus your attention there, then you can look for those synergistic improvements that you can make that both drive their business forward and your own. There, there's a really powerful result and behavior and outcome you're discussing and talking about. And I just, I'm going to share my stream of consciousness on it. That orientation shift changes the dialogue that product managers and product people can have with customers and potential customers in a significant way, right? As opposed to talking about my features, I'm bringing my stuff. <laughs> show me, show me, let me see, show you some stuff in my toolbox and see if you like it. It also empowers, I would say, the entire go-to-market side of the business to have a very different level conversation because if product is creating value and transferring what they've learned, those are powerful messages for the sales and marketing side of the business as well. And it's an opportunity on the third one because we both live in a world where we understand that sometimes the C-suite doesn't understand the purpose of product management. If those stories can be brought back into the organization and shared this is what our customers are living with. We have a lot more credibility as a product management organization to lead the way with strategy and direction. Mm -hmm. I just, those are the kind of things that I see underneath the, the, the words you're using to explain it. I'm curious if we kind of think about the current environment. You've, you've touched on this. What do you see that's, and we talked about some of it, but what do you see that's still missing in terms of how leaders, product leaders, product executives practice this role? What are the things that you see a lot of, you run into that you go, somebody, this, this is not being addressed. This is not being confronted or talked about. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it really comes back to, to this point that you made earlier about offense and defense and everything you just described is a way of playing offense instead of playing defense, right? Because now you look at that, that interaction that you have, like say with a sales team, you know, a sales team is always going to say, hey, I'm trying to close this deal. The customer said they'll sign on the dotted line if only they had these three features, you know, so you got to find a way to get them done. And what happens is when you operate in that way, you are uh, relegating the role of R&D to being a professional services function for the company. Uh, and now you're essentially a consultancy, a technical consultancy for, for your company or for your, for your clients, right? And that's not going to scale very well. You got to look at it's the most expensive professional services organization could have, right? Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's outrageous, right? And, and, and it's funny because, you know, companies can often get away with engineers and product managers and things like that as being R&D expense. But when you're doing it for the sake of closing a deal, like an individual deal, let's be real. That's cops, right? Like that's, 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 that's actually going against the bottom yeah. line. This is, this is part of your, your actual unit economics of selling, yeah. you know, the, the next product. Because you're going to have to go do it for the next company as well. Right. So you got to kind of get out of that model, say, we're going to take a product oriented approach if you're going to be a true product company. And that means that product has to be in the driver's seat of playing offense. And I think in a lot of ways through the, the coaching work that, that we do at Prodify, we really try to emphasize the importance of taking this approach, both for the sake of the CEO to understand the role of product and for the CPO or the VP of product to understand the things that they can start putting in place to, as you said, flip the script. So 
I'm going to play a little devil's advocate. Sounds great. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid, Ben, but you don't live in my business. You don't know my C-suite. We don't have a business strategy. They're looking at the roadmap as the strategy. I mean, I don't even know how to, how to, I don't even know how to begin to flip the script and changing this around. What hack can you <laughs> give me? <laughs> it's, it's a favorite word these days, right? What hack can you give me to, to help make progress here? Yeah, sure. I think you can start a little bit small, right? You, you can break this up into little chunks. So for example, many products are actually multiple products. They're suites of products, right? What if you tried to take this approach with one of those? What if you did it in a particular market? What if you did it, you know, and, and you see what the outcomes kind of like look like at a little bit of a smaller scale. It's always the best salesmanship is showing, not telling, right? You want to show the benefits that are kind of like coming from this. And so I always recommend to kind of like start at a smaller scale prove to the organization the value that kind of comes from this because everybody can see the downside, right? Oh, you're going to tell me no more often when I'm asking for these one-off kinds of things to go sell these deals. Like, how is that actually helpful for me? Well, you have to, you have to have some level of patience to see what the outcome is on the other side. And if you can kind of like do that with a, in, in a lower risk way, I think that's a great way of kind of getting the organization bought into it. I think then the next thing that you can do is you have to, you have to start from the bottom up in terms of the product stack. And if the product stack is vision, strategy, you know, planning, road mapping, sprint prioritization, you know, results, execution, et cetera, you kind of need to start at the bottom and work your way up because that trust gets established through delivery. And you go from delivery to, okay, are the priorities right? Okay, are the priorities right? Okay, well, is the strategy right? So even though theoretically the decision-making that leads to the priorities that you're making should be driven from vision and strategy and things like that. The problem is if you say, hey guys, I want to pause for a year <laughs> and go have all the right conversations and develop a vision and, you know, just trust me, it's going to pay off, you know, long-term. The problem is you erode the trust before you get a chance to actually execute on that plan. So well, you have to make sure that you're always kind of like establishing that trust and then reestablishing it. And, and let's be real. I'm sure in your business, you don't get called in when things are going really well, do you? Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It, so, so trust has already been eroded. There's already a, a, at least a trash can fire or dumpster fire going somewhere in the organization, <laughs> if not the buildings on fire. And so now the need is to do something, unfortunately, do something dramatic very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's the, the reality of it. But I think you're right. I agree with you starting small starting away from the core to prove out the principles mm -hmm. before you apply them front and center where everybody's watching is, is probably mm -hmm. the best approach. A couple of the things that I, would, that I would throw out there, I think one of them is transparency, you know, and I think that if you can be transparent about, you know, hey, look, we delivered these five things. We didn't see a lot of great results out of this, right? And, and you can right. sort of focus that, hey, the ROI isn't actually there. It, it requires you as the head of product, let's say, to be willing to fall on your sword a little bit, but you're not saying, look, that therefore it's a failure and it's all, what you're saying is, I just wanna highlight that we have opportunity to improve. The status quo is not good enough, right? One of the things that I like to do, and this is probably a good, a good hack if, if there is one, is to show the sales team, to ask the sales team or, or the, the customer success team, imagine if I took this part of the product away from you. Imagine if I took that part of the product away from you, what, what would have happened? You know, how many of your sales now are coming from the fact that you have these things built into the product? Mm -hmm. okay. What I'm trying to do now is I'm trying to create that next thing. So the two years from now, I could go back and ask you the same question. You'll right. say, oh my gosh, it's completely night and day. But for all the hacks that might be out there, 
at the end of the day, you also have to have an element of patience and you have to have an element of buy-in. And it's, you're never done selling people on the importance of this. And, and, you know, keep it in mind, right? Pe new people, even if, even if everybody agreed to it, people leave the company, new people come in, et cetera. They may not have been there for those conversations. So it's a never ending process of selling the importance of taking this approach and explaining not just the outcomes that are come from it, but the philosophy that underlies. You, you hit on something I think warrants a sort of a spin back. It's the notion of transparency, mm. which I think a lot of times is missing in a lot of places inside the organization, not just product. And that says to me that the leader has to be willing to put all cards on a table, right? So that people can see that there's no, no secondary agenda. And it also requires a great deal of trust because in the process of that, there will be things, as you pointed out in one of your examples, that things get done that don't measure up. And so it also requires the leader of product and the rest of the organization to reassess what success and failure really mean. Failure is not missing the final expected outcome. Failure is not doing something. Failure is not stepping up to do the next thing because it didn't work out last time. Mm -hmm. It's, it's it f continually revisiting things that aren't working and getting better is the way to make that happen, is to, get, to, mm -hmm. to get the organization to move forward. If you were a CPO in an org today, I'm not trying to put you back in that, that <laughs> job, but what would you be prioritizing for the next 12 months, 18 months? I do think that there is a lot to be looked at with AI. But it's being looked at in kind of an odd way to me right now. People are thinking about it in terms of new features that they can add to their product. And they're thinking about it in terms of, you know, how can I help to, to make my, my team more efficient writing user stories and go ahead and look at those kinds of things. But unit economics is a huge component of any business. And especially in B2B, where if you can lower the cost to serve, you can either lower the prices or you can spend that money to then go you know, create a new business along the way, right? That, that is a very tangible value to you as a business if you can reduce the cost to serve. And I think the customer support costs is, is one of those things that's, that's sometimes overlooked. You know, a good example of this, let, let's just take Woof, which is, you know, a B2B, a B2C company, but you can take any B2B company where you've had this kind of history of customer support tickets and things like that. I mean, Whoop has hundreds of thousands of these things, right? And you have all the text exchange back and forth you have transcribed phone calls. You have this enormous body of data that you can use. And if you think about applying generative AI on top of this, why does somebody need to go into the product, say that they want to talk to a rep, take, wait to get connected with them, do a chat that's really slow while the person's trying to chat with four other people at the same time and gets the messages mixed up? I mean, consider, you know, what happens if, if there's a lot of back and forth, hey, I need you to try doing this or troubleshoot that, et cetera. Then the, the customer service rep is, is waiting on the other side for that person to do it. And the customer reps themselves have to be retrained. Somebody, lose, you know, leaves their shift and, and somebody else has to take the ticket on, you know, but the customer service, you know, usually I think the tenure on average is like nine months. So everybody mm -hmm. has to be retrained constantly. If you can apply AI to that problem, you can solve people's problems immediately. It's constantly trained on every ticket that's ever existed, right? right. It's going to learn about what, what succeeds and what doesn't, and it's going to continue to refine and improve over time. And you can make it so that it's a categorically better experience for your customers. 
and probably reduce the cost to serve by 98% or something like that. So if I were a product leader, I would be looking for ways that I could adopt it to solve real problems that matter and not just do it on the surface level. Like, you know, I checked a box that we have some sort of AI component, but solve a real business problem that actually matters at the end of the day. I like the answer. I like the completeness of the answer. How do you keep yourself refreshed, renewed? What? I always ask people this question. You, you, you're, 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 you're a smart man. You're well-learned. You're, you're in the space. You live it. You've got great passion for it. Where do you turn to go pull for things that you need to put yourself in a position to provide value to your clients, to stay on top of the sector? What are, what are your hacks, if you will, <laughs> to stay on top of this? Yeah, right. Because it moves really fast. It does. You know, it does. I, I think one of the advantages that we have with Predify is we work with a pretty good number of clients and we get to see a lot of, you know, the, the continuation of those patterns that we talked about earlier. So I see the kinds of questions that people are coming with and I see the, the, the constraints that are there. Everybody, every company, of course, thinks that their own situation is unique, but I can tell you, you know, there's a lot of commonalities that are across these as well. And so it's great to, to create these, these ways in which people can learn from one another, that we can learn from them. We can share with them what's going on. We can share with one company what some other company is, is doing, you know, not, not in any competitive way or anything like that, but to say, hey, why don't you go talk to that person and, and you can share notes on this or why don't you know, let, let, let's have a, let's have a whole group session to kind of like talk about it and see what right. people are doing. So the brainstorming, you know, things like that really kind of allows people to connect with one another. I personally find that to be the most valuable way of staying on top of things is through real dialogue with actual people in the roles. If someone wants to reach out to you, wants to learn more about your advisory business, how would you recommend they do that? Uh, sure. I'll, I'll give two ways. One is to is, is go to our website. And, you know, by the way, we try to have a lot of free materials and templates and guides and things like that that are just available because we really do just want to share our, our practices across, you know, a broad spectrum of people. So we're, we're happy to, to share those things. We're happy to just have conversations with people if they just want to kind of talk and see if there, there are ways that we can provide direct value without any expectations on our end. Our website is Prodify, P-R-O-D-I-F-Y. So you can go there and, and check things out and, and learn a little bit more there. And then of course, you can always find me on LinkedIn. I'm really easy to find. My handle is just Ben Foster. So search for me there. And I would be happy to connect with anybody who had a chance to listen to this podcast. Excellent. Excellent. Ben, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. You've shared some valuable insight and some really practical things to help, I think, product leaders stay on top of their situations and even thrive in a job. I really appreciate it. And to those people listening out there, I appreciate you listening. Thank you for your downloads. We thank you for your reviews and comments. And until next time, this is Mike Smart, Go to Market Disrupted. Thank you for joining. Take care. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Egress Solutions, head on over to www.egresssolutions.net.